0: Good morning, Church. Uh, reading today from 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. The Word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you today as we start a new series. In the event that you didn't catch Jay, we're gonna find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter one. And yes, we are only looking at verses one and two. Uh, several several people this morning told me, that's it? No, that's it. And, and so we have a lot to unpack in these two Verses. While you open or load your Bible, got a couple of quick updates for you. The first one is that if you are new, we'd love to connect and get the opportunity to to pray for you. And so I invite you to to fill out one of the connect cards that are on the chairs, fill one out, and leave it in the connect desk. In addition to that, if you're new, uh, a little bit about us we love God's word. We love to preach from God's word. Therefore, we love to gift. God's Word. And so we have Bibles available for you. Please allow that to be our gift to you just for showing up and visiting. Finally, if you are a Covenant member or if you call Storehouse McAllen home or you're interested in membership as that's something that's coming up immediately after service, maybe with a five, 10-minute break in between, but immediately after service, we're going to have a quick members meeting concerning the incubator and a couple of updates that we received that we need to bring everybody up to speed on And so it'll be weird when you're kind of dismissed and then nobody moves because nobody wants to see who gets up. So it might be just some time for all of us to hang out. But I digress. Let's dive into our time. Many of you remember the TV show Family Matters, which first aired in 1989 and came to a close in 1998. If you're not sure about this show, one of the most memorable characters uh, was named and none other than Steve Urkel, or depending on the season that you jumped in on, you may have known him also as Stefan Urkel. (laughs) I say this because it has absolutely nothing to do with why we titled this sermon series Family Matters, but I wanted to make it very clear. As I mentioned earlier, we, we're beginning a new study in 1 Timothy. This is a small book that's located in the New Testament, and we're gonna find ourselves in 1 Timothy all the way up to Thanksgiving, so, so mid to late November. And we titled this series Family Matters for two quick reasons. First, the church is a family, therefore family matters, and we'll dig more into that as we dive further into our time. Secondly, as we cultivate a church family and as we grow as a family, we need to examine and discuss family matters. That is, things of importance, issues that help us to stay and grow healthy, values that we need to be aware of for the sake of protecting, cultivating, contending for, and particularly as we invite those into this family. Family matters because, most significantly, God matters, and God matters because our foundational identity is found in the Lord Jesus. But our functional identity as a church is rooted in the authority of God's Word, and that's our main idea for our time today. Our foundational identity is found in the Lord Jesus, but our functional identity as a church family is rooted, it's centered, is grounded upon the authority of God's Word. On the graphic, you'll notice that there is a dinner table, and we decided to go with the dinner table instead of anything else because when it comes to the dinner table in our homes, that that tends to be the, the center of all things. That tends to be where, obviously, we have our meals, but it's also where we make decisions, where we have discussion, maybe family devotion, where we have conversations. This is where we disciple one another and our children. This is sometimes where we go to sit down in the midst of discouragement. This is maybe the place you go to first thing in the morning when you pray. The family table is the center of the household. As we were considering this graphic, I was talking with our team and asking, as they've been to our house on, on, uh, on, on many occasions, the question was, how many times have we sat on, our, on my couch? And how many more times have we sat around the dinner table? I went, oh yeah, we sat around the dinner table. A lot. Yeah, exactly. It is the center of the household. And so as we dig into our time, I want you to know that this sermon is going to consist of a few questions that I'm going to unpack Today's sermon will ultimately be setting up the entire scope of this letter, trying to give you as much context as possible. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with 1 Timothy, we'll need to look at a few main individuals that is, Timothy and the Apostle Paul. And so let's begin with the first question. And the first question is well, who needs 1 Timothy? Who needs to hear? Who needs to learn from this letter? And the reason I ask this question is because, once more, if you're unfamiliar, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are often referred to as the pastoral epistles. And therefore, many individuals skip over these letters, and they think to themselves, well, I'm not a pastor, so I don't, I don't need these letters. But the truth is that while these letters are addressed to individuals, they are meant to be read corporately. Paul alludes to this at the end of 1 Timothy. So, back to the question, who needs First Timothy? Well, the first group of individuals is the church our functional identity is that of the church, if our functional identity is that of the church, then 1 Timothy is a blueprint for how we ought to function under the authority of God. Now, it's not going to cover every single thing, but it is going to address the essentials for a healthy church. The next group of individuals that may need to hear and listen and learn from 1 Timothy are those who are skeptical of the church. Perhaps you have experienced church hurt. Perhaps you are still a little uh, weary of the church. This book is a wonderful source of truth because God, through Paul, addresses the function of a church, that this is actually what the church is supposed to look like. This is how the church upholds the Word of God. This is how the church lives out this truth in her daily life. And finally, and these aren't the only groups, I'm just being very brief. Finally, I want to address the men for a moment. 1 Timothy is for you. You see, we don't just need good men, we need godly men. We need men who are not simply good, uh, who are not simply good men, but who are good at being men. Well, this letter addresses both men and women. There is an expectation, an exhortation, a push of godly leadership within men. And this is within the context of your personal life, of your family life, and in the church. If you look at the statistics, I don't have my coffee this morning, so I'm stumbling over my words. If you look at the statistics About 60% of churches in America consist of primarily women, or the main demographic in churches in America, 60% is mainly women and children, and I love that because our women and our children need sound doctrine just as much as we do, but the reason men aren't attending our churches, the reason men aren't leading is because many are simply passive. Passivity forfeits maturity. So, gentlemen, let that sink in for a moment. Passivity forfeits maturity. The reason you may not be leading your family well isn't because you don't know enough, it is because you are passive. The reason you don't disciple anyone isn't because you don't have a source of truth. It is because you are passive. Passivity forfeits maturity. And men work well, not only together, but they work well when they have a compass to their life, maps, and they know how to read both. Some of you have a compass, you have no idea which way north is. Some of you have a map, and you have no idea how to read a map. And so as a result, it's not that you don't have what you need, it's that you do not know how to act. You do not know how to move forward, how to lead, because we are passive. First Timothy addresses the essentials in family matters for the church. In short, we all need it. So, before I dig into more questions, let me pray for our time, and we'll consider these first two verses. God, we praise you, and we thank you for a day filled with your mercy, filled with your grace, so undeserving. God, as we look and open this new series uh, in First Timothy. God, I pray that our hearts would be convicted and challenged. God, I pray that those who know Jesus would grow in their delights toward Jesus, and that those who do not know Jesus would come and know him today. Lord, may you speak to us through your word, and may our hearts be receptive as we are humbled. We thank you once more, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me reread these first two verses, and then we'll dive into those questions I was telling you about. So it begins with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, so this is a letter from Paul to this individual named Timothy. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the first question, well, who is Timothy? Again, if you're unfamiliar with this part of the New Testament or this letter, you're going to ask, well, who is Timothy? Now, let me preface real quick. You're going to see, and some of the guys were joking with me earlier this morning, you're going to see a lot of Scripture on on the screen. I'm not going to read all of it, right? I'm just going to take chunks The point of all of that is so you see where some of these individuals first came on the scene, and so that we have a little bit of context as to why this individual named Paul is writing to this other individual named Timothy. When you access our notes online, you'll see all of these scriptures so that you can go back and study them yourselves. Here we go. So who is Timothy? Well, Timothy was a young believer who became a faithful pastor in the city of Ephesus, And so before digging into that, let's look at the faith of Timothy. We don't know a lot about Timothy, but we know enough. In Acts 16, Timothy comes onto the scene, and he is from this town called Lystra, and Paul visits because he has heard of this individual named Timothy. This is found in Acts 16, 1 through 3. And so Luke writes, Paul came to Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman was a believer, but his father a Greek, more than likely a non-believer. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So that's who Timothy is, right? He's this young believer, and Paul meets him in Acts 16. What we know about Timothy is that he was both influenced by and saved through faith in Jesus, through the ordinary faithfulness of his mom and grandma. So, for a moment, I want to address the ladies, and in particular our moms. Okay? Just because men are meant to lead doesn't mean you have a back seat in the discipleship of our children. A mother's influence and faithfulness with gospel truths are epic in the life of your children. I very, very much appreciate Timothy's testimony because it reminds me of my own mom's faithfulness. When I was a kid, my mom, in order to practice her English, would read uh, the story of Elijah and the widow that's found in 1 Kings 17. And she would read it to me every night to practice her English. And so when it came time for the Lord to call my mom home, and when it came time for me to do her eulogy, I immediately went to 1 Kings 17. Moms, you greatly matter in the life of your children and in their development. One of my favorite church fathers, his name is St. Augustine. Maybe some of you have heard of St. Augustine. He has this book. It's called Confessions. It's essentially his testimony, how he came to know the Lord Jesus, okay? In this one part of Confessions, he is writing a prayer to God about the faithfulness of his mom, Monica, and here's what he writes. My mother, this is him praying to the Lord, my mother, your faithful servant, was weeping for me to you weeping more than mothers weep for the bodily deaths of their sons. For she, by that faith and spirit which she had from you, saw the death in which I lay. And you, Lord, heard her prayer. You heard her, and you did not despise her tears, which fell streaming and watered the ground beneath her eyes in every place where she prayed. Indeed, you heard her. Praise be to God for our moms, for they are the only ones that can give birth to disciples. So, moms, you are instrumental in the development and discipleship of your children. If you have felt tired, weary, discouraged, or you feel like you're not doing enough, I'm sure that you are doing plenty. Remain faithful. Fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus, and do not stop praying for and over your children. That's what I love about Timothy. A little bit more about him. When Paul meets him in Acts 16, he's somewhere in his early 20s. And by the time Paul writes to him here in 1 Timothy, he's about in his 30s. Anything else is just little bits and details that we get from Acts and these letters Paul writes to him. So we know that he was a young pastor. We know that he was timid. Oftentimes, people call him like Timothy the timid because he was shy and he was nervous. Uh, And we know that he has some stomach issues. All of this we'll look at as we dive into this series. So that's a little bit about Timothy. When it comes to where Timothy was at, he was in this city called Ephesus, right? Paul even wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. It's called Ephesians, right? In Acts, particularly Acts 20, I think, we see that Paul spent a great deal of time in Ephesus, planting the church, raising leaders. And so, Paul ministered in Ephesus. Well, at some point, he leaves. And the little that you need to know about Ephesus is that it was the epicenter of paganism, and trade, and sex, and various idols. It was uh, big on innovation and creativity, like it was growing, right? It was the Austin, right, of that time right? It was growing. And so within that time, Paul learns of the church experiencing trouble. And so he sends Timothy back to Ephesus, and he keeps him there so that he would establish order and correction in the church. In fact, next week, we're going to look at the reason Paul sends him a little bit more in detail. But in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul says, "'As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia,' Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so Timothy is sent to Ephesus to establish order and correction because there is false teaching happening and there are false teachers lurking. And at the same time, Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him because he is a young pastor. He's under a lot of fire. He is leading a pretty big church. People within the church are leaving the faith. And so he's discouraged. And we'll see later on that he looks like he wants to quit. He's in the middle of this conflict and is leading through all of this turmoil. And then that brings us to Paul and Timothy's relationship. So Paul meets him in Lystra in Acts 16. And shortly thereafter, he invites Timothy to come with him on several of his missionary journeys. So Timothy got to be discipled by Paul. Timothy got to go and travel with Paul regularly. Timothy even helps to collaborate with Paul on various letters to the churches. So when when and if you have read 1 Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, or Philemon, at the end where Paul is dismissing himself, he says, I send you greetings, me and Timothy. Timothy was there with him. Their relationship was really tight. They were really, really close. Paul was like a spiritual father to Timothy, and he saw Timothy as his son. We see in the opening verses, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. In 2 Timothy, he addresses him as his dear son. My favorite is in Philippians 2. He is telling the church that he's going to send them Timothy, and this is what he says, for I have no one like him. I love that. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Paul loved Timothy. And so, Timothy was a faithful believer who was foundational in the health of the early church. So, that's who Timothy is. Now, let's look at the next question, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Why are we studying 1 Timothy, right? We're going to unpack this from verse 1, but why are we studying 1 Timothy? Well, Here's reason number one. We've got four reasons this morning. Reason number one is because as Christians, we live under the authority of God's Word, Look at what Paul says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Beginning with Paul, living under the authority of God was not foreign to him. He was not a self-appointed apostle. He's not just writing because he thinks Timothy needs to hear some good advice. He needs to hear the truth of God's Word. And so you may ask, well, well, wait, okay, who is Paul and, and what is an apostle? Paul was a former leader in the church, right? Or, or within the Jewish uh, uh, council, he was an individual who persecuted Christians. He was the one who gave the green light for Christians to be persecuted and even executed. In Acts 9, we see Paul, and some of you know the story, Uh, in Acts 9, we see that Paul is making his way to the city of Damascus. And as he is going to Damascus, he is going intentionally to persecute Christians, to throw them in jail. And on the road to Damascus, Paul has this supernatural encounter and conversion as a result of Jesus showing up on the scene. Acts 9 records this. This is verses 3 through 6. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice to him say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So Paul has this supernatural encounter with the risen Christ. And in the same chapter, Jesus tells us, and ultimately Him, He tells us what He's going to use Paul for. This is verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go, for He is a chosen instrument of Mine. A chosen instrument of Mine to carry My name before the Gentiles, those who do not know Jesus and kings and the children of Israel. That's, what, that's the mission that God gave Paul. So who was he? He was a former Jewish leader who persecuted the church, has a supernatural encounter and conversion story, right, where he is uh, faced with the risen Christ. And then he goes and preaches the gospel to the nations, to people who don't know Jesus. And as you read the book of Acts, there is even a section that as Paul walks into certain cities and certain temples, people are talking amongst themselves instead of texting, they're whispering, right? And they go on to say, like, "This this is Paul. Like, he was just persecuting the church a week ago. So he has this crazy story. You should read about it, right? Nevertheless, that's who Paul was. Well, now let's look at the, the apostleship. Of Paul, What is an apostle or who is an apostle? You need to know right now, right, that Paul didn't choose apostleship. He wasn't a self-appointed apostle. It wasn't because he went to a job fair and there was like a booth in the corner and it was like apostles for hire, right? Like that's not how it worked. Paul begins this letter by saying that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, his, his encounter with Jesus by command of God you need to know that when it comes to certain individuals or when it comes to individuals in general and they say, oh, I'm apostle so-and-so in certain churches, then you should direct them because we're all Bible reading Christians. You should direct them to 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul lists his experience as an apostle. So instead of fancy, what what do we have today? Limos, right? Instead of Paul having like fancy boats, right? Instead of fancy robes, maybe, right? This is the experience Paul gets. He writes Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, my own people, from Gentiles, danger in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And to top it off, if that's not enough, apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches." So, the next time you hear someone say, Oh, I'm Apostle so and so, really? Tell me about your walk. Here's what I want you to take. When it comes to Paul's apostleship, it was by the command of God. God doesn't give suggestions, He gives commands. God does not give suggestions. He gives commands. And Paul's writing is proof of that. He emphasizes this in his introduction. When he writes, God our Savior, Paul is looking back to the salvation God accomplished through Jesus. When he writes that Christ Jesus is our hope, Paul is looking forward to when Jesus will return in power and glory. The entirety of Paul's encouragement in this letter is centered around the activity and character of God in the life of the church. This letter isn't about Paul, and it's not really about Timothy. Well, who can be an apostle? There are requirements, and I'll go through these very quickly. One, he must have been an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Two, he must have been commissioned by Jesus himself to preach the gospel. Those are the requirements. The purpose of the apostles was to establish the foundation of the church. That office is now closed. Paul is not writing a letter because it's the cool thing to do when Facebook didn't exist. Okay? But because as an ambassador of Jesus, he is both encouraging and charging Timothy with the truth of God's word as Timothy leads the church in Ephesus. So we've talked about Paul. We've talked about his apostleship. We've talked a little bit about who Timothy is. What does this authority have to do with you and I? The Christian life is lived under authority to the word of God. And under that authority, there is liberty. Under the authority of the Word of God, there is freedom. We don't have to be constrained by the pressures of the world or culture because the only one we care who thinks about us is Jesus. That's great liberty. And though many people do not like authority, you might be one of them, whether you like it or not, You're living under some sort of authority. The question is, who the source is? So some live under the authority of tradition. This could be church tradition. This could be family tradition. And those are good things, right? But they are not equivalent to the authority of God's Word. They are not on par. They are not the same. But some live under the authority of tradition. Some live under the authority of cultural opinion. And to be quite fair, when it comes to cultural opinion, it is very influential, it is very persuasive, it is very loud, and it is also very invasive. And when it comes to living under the authority of cultural opinion, we can be looking at social things, political ideology, educational and economical ideology. But some live under the authority of cultural opinion. You're like, no, that's not me, dog. Okay, fine. Some live under the authority of emotionalism. And to be fair, emotions are good. They are necessary. They are powerful. They communicate how we're feeling, but they also communicate something about who or what we worship. And often, when we respond primarily out of emotion, it tends to lead us to make unwise, and sometimes even sinful decisions. And why does that happen? Because you are under the authority of your emotion. Perhaps you're under the authority of relativism, where, hey, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. And that's a postmodern idea that's incredibly dangerous and has seeped into the church. As opposed to standing on the ground of God's authority and standing under the authority of the Word of God, we dismiss His truth. To live under the authority of Jesus is to experience freedom. To reject it is folly. So here's the question. What authority are you submitting to? What authority are you submitting to? Let me just put it on the table, because we're discussing family matters. Jesus is the better answer. Who has died for you that you might live? Give me the name of the king. Give me the name of the president. Who has died for you so that you may live? Obedience to Jesus and his word liberates us from the folly and fickleness of the world. So, reason number one, as Christians, we live under the authority of God. That's why we're studying First Timothy. Number two, Jesus doesn't just save us uh, or reconcile us to himself, he saves us into his family. Therefore, family matters, right? The whole series. Family matters. Family matters because God matters, and as the family of God, the church must have vitality because, check it, God is alive, and we are made alive as we turn from idols and turn to Jesus. The entire story of the church is that God makes people who are dead in their sin, who are spiritually dead, and makes them alive in Christ. Therefore, the Word of God is the source of our truth, and the grace of God is the means by which we live in this world. Family matters because God matters. Family matters because community matters. Under community, we can talk about something like discipleship. So yesterday morning, uh, we had a men's gathering. and We talked a little bit about discipleship. And when it comes to discipleship, right now it is in a steady decline within the church. Relationship or relational discipleship is on a steady decrease in the church. Why? Let's rewind the clocks to 2020. In 2020, churches didn't meet for about 6 to 12 months, depending on the church. And within that time, let's be honest, because we were not immune to that, in that time, people stopped not only attending church, but watching it online. And as we stopped watching church or we stopped watching or participating in the Sunday gathering online, right, what did we end up doing? You ended up adding more things to your plate, new activities, new and different things to do. Now, fast forward to this year, particularly last fall. What happened? Everything opened up again. And now that everything opened up again, everybody's tripping out because we can't balance what we once had. And so as a result, discipleship is decreasing. Bible literacy is decreasing, right? Challenging one another, knowing one another is decreasing. How many of you, not with a show of hands, have even talked about like, you know what, we can only go to church once a month. Hey, can you, uh, can you disciple somebody? Well, oh, man, the thing is, no. <laughs> it's not because you don't have what you need. So let's, that's off the table. I no te hagas, por favor, right? Like, let's, let's get that off the table. It's not because you don't have what you need. It's because at some point we decreased our value in discipleship and in relationship. And so as a result, we really can't carry out the Great Commission well, right? The last part of the Great Commission is Jesus saying, teach them, those that we make disciples, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Who's teaching what? I mean, at the end of the day, discipleship is always in session. You're discipling someone whether you like it or not. So what are we teaching them? See, discipleship happens in the context of ordinary life, which means the church flourishes in relationship. First with God, that's our vertical relationship, and then it pours out into one another. That's horizontal Right? Paul addresses Timothy in verse 2 as my true child in the faith. He saw Timothy as his son. He was, part, he was part of his family. Their relationship was not bound by blood, but by faith. And so how can we disciple one another into maturity? How can we disciple one another? Because we're under the authority of God. How do we do that? I'll tell you. Here's the secret. Ready? Through relationship and challenge. That is how humans flourish. You might say, well, I don't like that. That's exactly why you're not flourishing. That's the point. Relationship and challenge. We were designed for relationships more than we were for accomplishments. We flourish when we are known and when we are challenged. Some of you have asked, why aren't I growing? Because you don't want to be known and you don't like it when you're challenged. And so someone else carries the blame other than you. That's why you're stuck in the same place. That's why you have forfeited maturity. That is why discipleship is on a decline in the church. That is why we don't know our Bibles as well as we thought because Jesus as the answer is great when it comes to kids ministry. And let me just say, our children, our disciples, 20% of our, our church consists of children. There is plenty of discipleship to do. That is how we flourish and that is how the church thrives. Relationship, so being known and being challenged. That's the only way. So why haven't some of you grown? Because you've forfeited those two things. And something else has piled onto your plate willingly. In community and in relationships, it brings out the best in you. Some of you are like, I'm already beat up. I don't know how, right? Well, we're just going to keep it going, right? You see, too often we value individualistic culture, an idealism. I just want it to be a certain way. If it was just this way, then I'd be known. Then I'd be discipling. No, you wouldn't because you're not doing it now. Idealism kills community, All right? So when you're like, it's just me and Jesus. Jesus, just take the wheel. It's me and the Lord, right? That concept and philosophy is puro pedo, right? Because it is foreign to the New Testament, So if you're that person, like, Jesus, take the wheel. That doesn't exist in the New Testament. Like, if we took you and dropped you in the New Testament culture, they'd be like, what kind of a Christian are you? Some of you might say, well, it's because I'm introverted. I just don't like crowds. You know, I'm people. And I get it. If you don't believe me, you could ask my wife. Sometimes, and our community group knows this, when it comes to community group, sometimes I will take a quick break, run to the bathroom. I'm just sitting in there to just regain composure and then to go back out. Okay? So I get it. But here's the thing. Let's just be honest when you're like, oh, I'm just introverted. No, you're just selfish, right? Why? Because who's in authority at that point? Who? I mean. So you're like, well, I got, you know, I got community online. There's no such thing as online community. That's a trendy word meant to bait you, and it's baited all of us. There's no such thing as a digital community or an online community because it lacks embodiment and it is an insult to the incarnation. No te hagas. All right? Here's the reality. Here's the reality, especially as we look at 1 Timothy. You and I need to be in community and relationship and discipleship with one another because family matters, because God matters. Because when we're on our own, check it, when we're on our own, that's when wolves attack. Wolves attack, not groups, wolves attack individuals. When Peter writes that Satan is uh, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, he's not thinking about groups, he's thinking about individuals. And Jesus has solved this problem of individualism through the church. If you're looking for the perfect church, I'm telling you right now, on this side of eternity, she does not exist. The church is messy. The church sometimes, like, is not nice. I was going to use other words, but there's children, right? Like, the church sometimes doesn't do a good job at being the church. And we're a part of that. It's not like you're the one who's got it figured out, and the rest of us are all just dropping the ball. We're all in this messy, beautiful community that God has called to Himself and is sanctifying for His glory. So community is not simply the answer to isolation. It is how we were designed to flourish. So that was reason number two. Reason number three, why first Timothy? Because the church communicates the truth of God. I like what the old dead guys, the reformers said about the church. They called the church the mouth house of God. And this is just a simple reminder that though this is a personal letter addressed to Timothy from Paul, it was meant to be read corporately to the church, in 1 Timothy 3:14 this is what Paul tells Timothy I hope to come to you soon But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, right? So that's how we function as a church family, which is the church of the living God. That's the vitality that we have as a church, right? A pillar and buttress of the truth. The church communicates loudly, unashamedly, consistently, faithfully the truth of God. And in the context of 1 Timothy, it is so that the church would be on guard against false doctrine and false teachers. The church, that's us, right? And the reality of Paul writing this is because this is exactly what's happening in Ephesus is exactly what Paul predicted would happen 10 years prior. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you'll see this up on the screen. This is Acts 20, verses 17 to 31. Paul's time in Ephesus has come to an end, and so he's gathering with the pastors And he tells them that he has declared the whole counsel of God. I have discipled you. I have raised you up. I have given you the truth. You have everything that you need. And here's his word of encouragement and exhortation. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul is saying, hey, as I leave, pay attention to your life. Pay attention to your doctrine. Pay attention to the church. Why? Because Jesus paid really good money for his bride. Pay attention to your life, to your doctrine, and to the flock. And he gives them the reason why. It's not just some like pithy encouragement. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Wolves come from within the church, right? We've walked through several letters of the, Old, or the New Testament where the authors are primarily considered with stuff happening outside the walls of the church. Here, Paul is saying, this is going to happen from within. And so how do we guard against false doctrine and false teachers? All right, three quick ways. This isn't like a list. This is me just saying, it. number one is the pulpit. That's why we preach through books of the Bible, because it forces us to look at hard things. And it forces us to wrestle with the truth of God. So we're going to protect the church through uh, sound teaching. We protect the church through church membership. Right? We started doing a, an interview. Right? That interview is to hear your story. That interview is to hear what you know about God. That interview is to hear about how God saved you. We protect the church by growing in our discipline of reading God's word. Praying for the church, praying for one another, discipling one another. The church guards against false doctrine and wolves by communicating the truth of God. Reason number four, why are we studying 1 Timothy? Because the church needs hope. This is in the last verse. Paul concludes, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus, or Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what Paul is getting at the source of hope for the church is Jesus Christ. And he uses these three words, grace, mercy, and peace. Church, our goodness, or excuse me, our hope is not based on our goodness, but in the grace of God for sinners. Our hope is not based on our accomplishments or our strength, but in the loving kindness of God through His mercy toward the weak, the struggling, and the tired. Our hope is not in how loud or brash or big we are, but in the peace of God that we find ourselves in when we are in a right relationship with God. Timothy was a young pastor who led a big church He defended the gospel against the culture of the city. That's primarily what 2 Timothy is. And contended for the gospel within the church. And he was a man who needed hope. He's tired. He's weary. He's getting beat up from all sides. He's tired. And so Paul encourages Timothy and he reminds you and me that our hope is not a feeling but a person that is rooted in human history. And he entered into our mess as the man, Jesus Christ, and lived life in our stead, took on our responsibility by dying on a cross in our place for our sin, and then was buried. And on the third day, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he rose from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and hell. And the only thing that is rotting and decaying in that grave is sin. And as a result, he gives us new life and hope. And that's what Timothy needs. Paul encourages Timothy with the truth of God's grace, mercy, and peace to keep going. If you're familiar with William Wilberforce, he was a British politician who uh, God used for a number of decades to abolish the, the slave trade. And at one point in his life, he's discouraged, he's defeated, he's tired, he can't keep going. And uh, a pastor-theologian named John Wesley writes to him. And this is what he says to, to Wilberforce. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, unless you have been commanded by God to do this, you will, we, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, then who can be against you? Oh, be not weary of well doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away from it. He was on the verge of quitting. Timothy was on the verge. I'm, I'm done. And Paul encourages him with the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the peace of God to keep going. God reminds us through Paul that God uses the weak. And if you think you're a nobody, if you think you're weak, then you're in good company. Because God uses nobodies to tell everybody about a somebody. God uses the church to tell everyone about and encourage one another with the hope of Jesus Christ. So why First Timothy? It's of first importance for us as a church because we live under the authority of God's Word, because family matters, because the church communicates the truth of God, and because the church needs and embraces the hope found in Jesus. And so as we begin our study of 1 Timothy this semester, let us humble ourselves by submitting to the Word of God. This is a beautiful letter that has come at the right time for our church. Paul presses Timothy as he does us to grow in our love and delight for God and for one another, to proclaim the beauty of the gospel to the heart of those in our circles and cities. And so as we close, Christian, whose authority are you submitted to right now? And how's that going for you? And I just need to do better. See, you don't understand, see, those claims... Those are not a great philosophy because the source of that truth claim is you, and that's the problem. Submitting to our own authority, check it, submitting to our own authority is as old as the garden in Genesis 3. So let me invite you to repent, to turn from idols and to turn to the Lord Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, I'm so honored that you're here. Thank you for being so patient in this introduction. It's only two verses, it only took us 50 minutes. But let me let me just be honest. You are bound by the authority of your own heart and the world around you. And you think you're free, but in reality, you're enslaved. You're enslaved to your own passions. Yet in Jesus there is freedom. The Bible says that in Jesus the yoke of slavery is removed under His loving kindness. And God has made a way for you to be free through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Today turn to Him in faith and repentance. Church, our foundational identity is found in Jesus Christ, but our functional identity as a church is rooted in in the authority of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, to live under your authority through Jesus is to experience freedom, to not only live as the redeemed, but to walk by grace among one another and those who don't know Jesus. Therefore, may we humble ourselves before You. And in so doing, Lord, we confess that we often desire to be our own authority. In reality, we desire to be our own God and our own King and our own Savior. Would You forgive us? God, would You grant us grace so that we would turn away from idols and turn toward Jesus today? Holy Spirit, give us the grace to abide in Jesus. And may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.